This morning, as one of the um, older pastors, that's what Pastor Emeritus means, the old guy. I want to have one of those uh, father-son, father-daughter talks with you. I want to get down into the weeds. And we want to talk about when this world just tries to suck the faith right out of you. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever have those times that you feel God's a million miles away? What I'm asking you is, do you ever feel, forget about what you believe, do you ever feel abandoned by God himself? C.S. Lewis, after losing the love of his life, he writes this little book called Grief Observed. A lot of people were shocked at the book because it didn't sound like C.S. Lewis, the great Christian leader. And in this book, he shared what he was feeling. And he wrote, Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door. Slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And then after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. In the 60s, like I said, I'm one of the old guys. One of my favorite folk singers was Gordon Lightfoot. Gordon Lightfoot wrote this uh, song entitled The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and it was long. 
And it was later when I was told that it was to memorialize what happened November of 1975. There was a freighter that went down in Lake Superior. A hurricane took it down. Lost the entire crew, all 29 men. There, there was a lyric that I didn't get for years. Hidden in those lyrics of this song, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn minutes into hours? Have you ever asked a question like that? I guess it's okay to ask. David does. The first verse of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? So here's the real question. We all believe in God. We, we believe in his presence with us. But do we trust what we believe? Because at times it feels like God's a million miles away. But maybe when we feel that way, there's another question we need to ask. Maybe that question is, Guess who moved? Listen to what the psalmist, this is what we believe. Psalmist writes this in Psalm 139. Even when I was in the womb of my mother, God was there, his presence was with me. The psalm begins, O Lord, thou hast searched me and you know me. Thou dost know when I sit down, you know when I stand up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word that drips from my lips, you are fully aware thou hast enclosed me behind, before. You've laid your hand upon me. Huh. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high for me to attain. This we believe. But that's not the question this morning. The question is, do we trust what we believe. Don't you ever have doubts? Come on. We're in the weeds here. Don't you ever have doubts about what you believe? So open your Bibles to Psalm 13. I spent last year in Psalm 23 and shared it with you. See, for me, preaching is like licking on a sucker for a year and then just say, take a lick of this. Well, I've been in Psalm 13 this last year. I want you to take a lick of this. The 13th Psalm is quite simple in form. It's only six verses. There's three stanzas with two verses in each. You've got the problem. You've got the petition. And then you've got the praise. Now, most likely, David composes this psalm when he's on the run. Either he's running from Saul, who's trying to kill him, or as Absalom later on would conspire against him and run him out of town, one of those times, David is feeling this big time. God, it feels like you're a million miles away. Would you believe this psalm was set to music by the German composer Johann Brahms in the last 19th century? Yeah, he's the same guy with Brahms' lullaby. But this isn't much of a lullaby. Look at the problem in the first two verses. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide your face from me? How long 
Shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Does God actually hide his face from us? Does God actually forget us? You know, I listen to the pagan litany and they, they all want to tell me there is no God. And, and, and if there is a God, he doesn't have any time for you. You've been forgotten, abandoned. But, but this psalm, is this psalm really about a God who forgets? The same God who authored this, authored through the prophet Isaiah, these words. In Isaiah chapter 46, listen to verses 3 and 4. God speaking to all of us. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth. I was there at your birth. And I've carried you from the womb. Even to your old age. I shall be the same. And even to your grain years, I shall bear you. I have done it. And I will carry you. And I shall hear you. And I shall deliver you. Does that sound like a God who forgets? And yet, what did Jesus mean when he was on the cross? After he'd been tor tortured, being executed by Rome. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of course, the critics say that's where Jesus is losing it. That's where he exposes that. How could it be the son of God when he's sitting there questioning, doubting God's presence with him? Well, if you're losing it, first of all, you don't quote scripture. <laughs> and he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, that was prophesied by David that there are times as David felt here and Jesus would feel on the cross, it feels like God has abandoned me. It feels like God's a million miles away. But was he? Is he? What does David mean to take counsel in my soul? It's better translated to wrestle in my soul. How long do I have to wonder, God? Are you there? This is a choice. Am I going to trust what I believe or am I not? The elitists think I'm simple-minded with this whole thing. To even believe there's a God who, come on, cares for me? Maybe they're right. Maybe I am being simple-minded to believe this. David, in these two, first two verses, four times, four times he will ask, how long? How long? How long? How long? Why would it feel at times like heaven is, as C.S. Lewis said, bolted and silent at times? And yet the psalmist writes in Psalm 27, and he says this, the last two verses of the psalm, I would have despaired you know what that word means? Lost all hope. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. I'd be feeling hopeless 
if I didn't go back to what I believe. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. And what is this courage? Yes, wait for the Lord. What is this waiting thing? How long do we have to wait at times? Waiting is perseverance. And perseverance is loyalty. How loyal are you to God? And are you loyal enough to persevere and to wait because you trust the relationship? See, with distress comes the feeling, I'm hurting. And if I'm hurting, then you must not care. And maybe my critics are right. I am simple-minded on this whole thing. So would David trust what he believes? Or is he just going to keep on feeling that he's so abandoned and alone? Well, where do you see David's loyalty to his relationship with God here? In the next two verses, he's praying. Now, why would he be praying if he feels so abandoned? Well, look at the petition. Verses three and four. Listen to what he's praying for while he's feeling so abandoned. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have overcome him. Lest my adversaries rejoice when I am shaken. His prayer is, Lord, enlighten my eyes. What is that? What is he asking God for? Very simple. The Hebrew is clear. A new view of God. Because the one that his feelings has taken him to is less than who God is. He's got a spiritual cataract problem here. His, his, his view of God is cloudy, darkened, the cataract blurring of his vision of God. You kind of think, well, I believe in God and I have this view of what God is like. But we don't understand. That is not static. That deteriorates daily, daily, daily because our view of who God is consistently becomes less than what he is. Less of who he is. We keep letting the way we feel darken our view of God and our eyes are deceived to believe that God, to believe in a God who is less than he is? Why do you think at the end of John's first little letter, 1 John, he ends out of nowhere the last verse by saying, oh, by the way, be careful of idolatry. And you go, John, where, where did that come from? Because he knows our view of God deteriorates. And darkens. Enlightened eyes is basically enlightened faith. And what is he praying for here? God is the author of faith. And it is God authoring that faith that enlightens, gives a new view of God. Remember, God's always been the author of, of, of faith. John, in John's gospel, chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus admits it's impossible to recognize who he is. Like we've told you before. What, a little Jewish guy, five foot six, maybe five foot seven on a good day? He's God in a bod, creates the heavens on the earth. 
this little Jewish guy gets in trouble with Rome. He's executed. Oh, by the way, that's a sacrifice that's provided for your sin. And if you believe that and he <laughs> rose from the dead, you're going to have eternal life. What idiot would believe that? What I don't understand is, why do I believe that? And Jesus says, let me tell you. Because he says in John 6, no one, Jesus says, no one comes to me. No one recognizes me. That's too impossible to believe unless he's drawn by the Father. And in verse 45 says, for the prophets say, we sh you shall learn of me from my Father in heaven. It is God who authors faith. It is God who causes our eyes to see the truth, the genuine truth of who he is. That's why Peter in his last letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, the very first verse, he begins with, now I'm writing to those of you who have received the same kind of faith as me. I always thought the apostles got a super dip of faith. Do you remember ninth grade math? Of course you don't. Remember uh, 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 an isosceles triangle? An isosceles triangle was a triangle with two equal sides. Peter uses that word isos. Describing the same kind of isos faith that we received. 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 So if God is the one who initially caused us to have our eyes enlightened, to get the view that there is a God, who God is, who his son was, it's the same God that if I ask God to enlighten my eyes, give me the faith, restore this new sight before my faith dies. And David's serious about this. David has a long-standing history on the battlefield. Boy, in these days, if you fell you were slain on the field, you did not have some medic to run to you and say, I've got you. You didn't have some stretcher brought to you to take you to safety. When you were cut down, you were down until the end of the battle. And only if you survived, maybe you would have the hope of living. The picture David uses here in the Hebrew is that of a battlefield. And you are mortally wounded, lying there in the mud, and you're bleeding out. And unless something happens, you will sleep the sleep of death, he says. Your faith is going to die. You're going to die. And my antagonists, oh, they'll believe that they were right all along. Because remember, they're the ones that say there's no one there. No one cares. There was no help, no encouragement, no hope. Come on. We live on this cold, indifferent universe. We are an accident living on the speck of a planet. There's no God out there for you. There is no meaning, purpose, or hope. Don't you feel better now? That's what I've always asked in my debates with my atheistic friends, agnostic friends. What do you have to tell me that's going to make me feel better about my life? That there's no purpose, no meaning, no hope? Am I encouraged that there might be no God who cares about me? Great. That makes me feel better. And yet, it was Martin Luther who put it this way. Our hope despairs at times, but it's our despair that hopes there's a call David has here for God to hear and deliver him from this feeling. This is what he wants deliverance from. This is not from some sword, some threat to his physical life. The threat, the enemy, is his eyes have been darkened. 
and they've been darkened by his feelings because feelings are so powerful. And he's asking God for deliverance from his eyesight. So he prays, oh Yahweh, my God, this is a confession of faith. Unless God does something to restore my sight, huh, knowing and seeing God as he really is, God, please show me you are there and that I've not been abandoned. My spiritual cataracts need healing. And when I feel God is abandoning me, I am filled with fear, anxiety, and God, I'm praying for a new view of you, a view of you of a God who does not abandon his own. This I believe, but God, you've got to give me the faith to trust what I believe. And then notice what happens. This psalm pretty much begins pretty much a bummer. Remember last night in the worship, everybody was jumping and bouncing around, all joyful and happy. And I'm sitting right over there going, oh, great. This message is going to go over like a pregnant pole vaulter. No question, you know. People are going to walk out on this one. Oh, sour puss Daryl. But here's how this thing ends. The praise, verse 5 and 6. David says, but I have trusted in thy loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in my deliverance, thy salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's where he ends up. God answers his prayer. When life is so strained, praise is usually a forgotten impulse David's going to trust what he believes, so much so, he's going to make a vow. I will praise God when my deliverance from this feeling comes. The object of trust here, he says, is I'll trust in your loving kindness. That's the word again, hesed. When Moses, back in Exodus 33, when Moses says, God, show me your glory. God, what is it about you you want us to know? What is your name? What's your reputation? What do you like? And when God gets around to answering that in Exodus 34, God says, well, I'm compassionate, gracious. I'm slow to get angry. I forgive. I'm about truth. But twice, twice. Now, in the Hebrew language, they have no exclamation point. So if they want to make an exclamation, they double the word. They use it twice. So if somebody is not just Lord, but they're really, really, really Lord, in the Hebrew, they're what? Oh, good. Last night, nobody could get it. <laughs> Lord of lords. If you're really king, king kingius, you're king of king. If a place is really, really holy, it's holy of holies. Twice, God says, but what I really want you to know about me, my glory, my name, is hesed, loving kindness. The word means I have a covenant loyal love for you. I covenant that I care about your well-being from birth to death and beyond. It is God's covenant loyalty. Beloved, you forget this. God has made a promise to you. And what does that loyalty of God feel like? It feels safe. Because safety is felt in the loyalty of another. When I know there's someone else, no matter what, is loyal to me, they care about my well-being, 
That makes me feel safe. And when you feel safe, that's when you feel loved. And when the feeling of safety comes, the praise follows. And David makes a vow. When, when this fear subsides that God's a million miles away, when this feeling changes and I'm delivered from it, I will make a vow to praise God. Why, why does he do that? How often do we celebrate the many times God's delivered us from those fears and feelings? A couple months ago, I gathered up our old CDs and eight tracks. Those of you who are younger, ask somebody what that is. And I uh, paid to have them all put on a thumb drive. These were the films of when, when Holly and I were married and, and the boys and our life and the boys growing up. And I was watching one and it was my 50th birthday. That's 19 years ago. It was over in the chapel. And there was a gathering of people to celebrate my 50th birthday. Holly and the boys put it on. And they have my one son get up and just share how wonderful I was. And then the other son get up and say how wonderful I was. It wasn't even my funeral service. This was great. Even John Paulton gave a 15-minute message on how wonderful I was. And then they had celebration and singing. And oh, I tell you, what a heady night for me. But I'm watching this thing. And I could not remember anything from that night. I knew I was there because I'm watching myself. But I can't recollect, I can't remember anything that night. And all of a sudden, I got this fearful thought. Because I can remember in the last 50 years, every betrayal, every hurt, every pain, every time someone's lied to me or used me, I got that down. Because great pain, great memory. But what if I can't even remember that phenomenal celebration of my 50th birthday? What else has slid off my radar? What if there are wonderful things in my life, God's deliverance, God's blessing, and they just slipped off my memory and I'm going to grow and be an old man and I will only remember the bad stuff and no wonder I'll be poopy. <laughs> so what's the hook? If pain is the hook, but with blessing and deliverance, there's no pain. Could it be that praise is the hook? that keeps those wonderful deliverances when God was faithfully delivering me from all kinds of doubts and fears and concerns and his praise becomes the hook that causes it not to slide off my radar. And so he makes the vow. I will celebrate. I will remember. I'll be mindful of what has happened in the past. I'll remember and I'll sing. Sing. Oh, do I have to? I, I don't like singing. You ever heard me sing? Sound like a wounded dog. Well, singing's not about the music here. It's about grateful emotions expressed. 23rd Psalm, my cup runneth over. Here he deals with me bountifully. I mean, he, he changes my feelings that God's a million miles away to trusting what I believe. And all of a sudden, 
I understand and feel the safety of his presence. Isn't that at least worth some humming or a zippity doo dah or something? Because it's the hook that causes me to remember that God has always been there. God loves with a loyal love. God's loyal to a promise he made to me that he would never leave me, always be with me. It's a pledge God's made to us. It's a pledge David makes to God. Listen. God will give you a new view of himself as often as you need one, as often as you ask for one. So you can throw the pity party and feel all doubtful and poor you and whine. How long? How long are you going to let this happen, God? David, let it go four times. The fifth time, now it's bad attitude. Because somewhere you need to come to that point. I need to come to the point of saying, God, I got to trust what I believe. You've made a promise to me that you would always be with me. God, I just can't make up that I'm feeling differently. You will have to enlighten my eyes. You will have to spiritually author some fresh faith for me to see you for who you are. A God who keeps his promises and never abandons his own. Remember the story of Louis Zapparini? So we began the service. The POW who ended up being tortured in a Japanese prisoner's camp. Louis Zappellini had competed in the 1936 Olympics there in Berlin. And when World War II broke out, he became a bombardier on a B-24. Now when his plane went down in the Pacific, he survived 47 days adrift on a life raft. And as he drifted, he was surrounded, he said, by circling sharks. He described that they would come so close that he could feel the fins as they would scrape along the side of the craft. At one point, a shark lunged over the wall of the raft, mouth open, trying to drag him into the sea. It was there. He begged God with a vow. God, I promise, you deliver me here, and I will always remember that you did. But something about the POW camp caused him to forget. Or he chose to forget. Because he did not even remember that pledge, that vow. Until 1949, after his life was almost destroyed by shame, guilt, alcohol. But his wife talked him into going to this crusade in 1949 by this young evangelist. It's his first one in 1949. And there he goes, and he remembers, he remembers that vow. And at that moment that he remembered the vow, God enlightened his eyes, and he saw the God who is for the first time. Here's the deal. I feel, I think, I believe, I trust, I do. I feel abandoned at times by God. But I think that I need a new view of God, so I ask. 
I believe God is always near. So I ask God to give me the faith to trust what I believe. And I'll keep my vow. I'll remember to thank him in praise, to hook it in my mind and memory so I never forget. And let my eyes be darkened again and again and again. In other words, I remember what Jesus said. Oh, I'm with you always, always, even to the end of the age. I will remember. When was your last deliverance? When was the last time God enlightened your eyes and delivered you from a time where you were doubting, you were fearful? Have you marked it with praise? If you haven't, just get to it. Because I do not want to have to live with the fear of the feelings that I've been abandoned when it's all a myth. You see, there is a God who's made a promise to you that he's your father, you're his sons, daughters. Second Corinthians 6, I'll be a father to you and you'll be sons and daughters to me. And I promise I will never, ever forsake you. And when you feel He's a million miles away. Your struggle's not with God. Like I said, ask yourself the second question. Who moved? And that's when you ask God, enlighten my eyes so I can see you for who you are. I've got some cataract problems going on here. Father, that's our prayer this morning. Deliver us from our own doubts and our own refusal to praise you. And to ask for you to give us the faith to lighten our eyes that we might know that you remember us. The real question is, how often do we remember you? So Lord, author fresh faith as often as we need it, as often as we ask for it.